Hello and welcome to this latest episode of Are We There Yet? The 2022 series of the Project Edward podcast. My name's James Lutkirst and in this edition we'll be heading north of the border to discuss changing minds and changing behaviour with Chief Superintendent Louise Blakelock, Police Scotland's Head of Roads Policing and Michael McDonnell from Road Safety Scotland. We'll also be taking last week's conversation on older drivers a stage further with questions to Dr Sam Chapman who's Chief Innovation Officer and co-founder of The Flow and to Professor Charles Musselwhite from the University of Aberystwyth. Both have some exciting things to say about how we can improve the driving experience and the road environment for older drivers as well as what we need to do to support independent mobility when driving is no longer an option. Well first of all to Scotland. Chief Superintendent Louise Blakelock is Police Scotland's Head of Roads Policing and a keen supporter of Project Edward while Michael MacDonald from Road Safety Scotland has put up with me in one way, shape or form since our paths crossed at what was then the Scottish Road Safety Campaign's annual seminar in Peebles way back in 2002. 20 years later, he's still speaking to me. So that's an achievement worth celebrating. Anyway, I started our conversation by asking Louise Blakelock to provide her take on how Scotland is performing from a road safety point of view. In 2022, things are very challenging for road safety in Scotland. We've got the new road safety framework, um, very challenging targets that we're working very much collectively with our partners towards it. Um, unfortunately, as everyone will know, there's too many road deaths, too many serious and collisions on the roads, and everyday my officers are out there dealing with serious and fatal road collisions, which is devastating in terms of um, the families and the communities. Um, in terms of road safety, we're we're very privileged. I think that we have a real strong road safety unit and a um, road policing unit within Police Scotland, um, absolutely fully supported by Transport Scotland and our own executive within Police Scotland. So I feel very privileged to have that. Um, we've got many dedicated officers who are lifelong experience in dealing with these um, devastating road crashes. And we've got the expertise to, to deal with them, but the, the main area of focus for us is actually trying to prevent them. So very much a balance between enforcement and the education, um, both of which are equally important. There's a place for both, I believe. Um, and sometimes the education part is through enforcement um, at the roadside. But absolutely, it's a partnership approach um, with Road Safety Scotland, Transport Scotland, and actually every member of the public and every person that gets in a car and goes on a motorbike every pedestrian, every cyclist, I believe, have got a real important part to play in road safety. Michael, how do you see the partnership and, and what are the particular things that the police bring to that partnership? Well, I think the beauty about the, the partnership is that um, we're all singing from the same hymn sheet. Everybody has this particular goal and that, that has been welded together with the framework. And I think the important thing for me in the framework was the, the kind of full adoption of the safe system. When we did an interim review of the previous framework, we adopted the safe system, but we really only did that in paper. Uh, and now that's, that is our uh, direction of travel. That's the philosophy that underpins everything we're doing. And, and like all the partners, at least have a very, very important role. I think, they, I think it's difficult for them. Um, and sometimes uh, Louise and I can have a bit of a discussion with this because for me, um, if we're doing high-profile campaigns, then we like to see the police out there doing high-profile enforcement. But as you know, every officer has um, 
you know, autonomy within any particular situation. So they may decide that, that an educational intervention is better than an enforcement intervention. So I think it's it's the, it's the fact that um, the, the roles that we all play are, are so important. The fact that we, we, we merge them together is, is particularly important. And I think that, that we're all driven by the same system and the underpinning of the same system when that's, you know, creating safe road users on a road network, because that's, that's what we're all involved in. Um, that whole notion that things will go wrong, people will get it wrong, but why should simple mistakes lead to catastrophic outcomes? And I think that's, that's what we're all working towards. And, and the collaboration with Police Scotland and other partners is, is, is brilliant in Scotland, I think. I'm going to just go off the the script a little bit here, and it's our the, the perception that we accept that there are these catastrophic outcomes in road collisions where we don't accept the outcomes of things going wrong in other forms of transport. And I think that's a really important issue from my point of view that we that we hit head on. And do you have any thoughts on that? Um, um, start with Louise. We should be accepting it, and I think more and more we don't accept it. Um, I think certainly every road death is avoidable. You know, people don't set out to kill people on our roads. It's often it'll be the circumstances that led to a collision. People's behaviour and their personal choices contribute to that. So you'll have at one extreme, you'll have people taking drink, um, sorry, well, taking alcohol and drugs and getting behind the wheel. You'll have people not wearing seatbelts people that are speeding, doing dangerous manoeuvres, that's a choice, but quite often it will often be a lack of concentration, it'll be a mistake that'll lead to devastating consequences, so we absolutely should not accept that that is what can happen to people when they sit in the roads and that our vision for Scotland is that we'll have um, Vision Zero by 2050, that there'll be no and people die in Scotland's roads by 2050, that's extremely challenging, as you can understand. But I think it's right that something collectively we all need to work towards. Um, maybe, Michael, you could speak up here for how important is the victim's voice in maybe trying to change our minds into less acceptance of, of these, that, that these have to happen, that, that they are inevitable. Um, you have so much connection you know, and, and have in your career met families whose lives have been shattered by road death. Um, is, is that still an important factor in helping behaviour change? I think I would have to say it can't be. Um, and I think that's largely, I mean, we, we in Scotland were the first people to actually sit down with a psychologist when planning campaign activity. Um, a psychologist who was also a police officer, believe it or not. Um, and, and so we sat down and sort of said, well, you know, we've done campaigns based on what we think works. We've, we've done campaigns based on what other people have done. Can we actually underpin our campaign activity by proven behavioural change models? So in so doing, we can then appreciate every aspect of it. And while case studies and victim's voice, like you've said, has an important role, it needs to be used in the right way. Because we know for a lot of people, um, their assessment of risk is just way off beam. Um, they don't assess risk properly. They sometimes don't recognise risks. And of course, at the younger end of the, the driver uh, scale, that's particularly true because of, of brain development. So we need to use whatever is the most appropriate and to use the cliche tool in the box for, for a given audience. And that may involve the voice of the victim and it may not. But we need to use them sparingly because if people's perception of risk is so such that 
they don't ever think they're going to be involved in an accident. They don't ever think they're going to see an accident that's serious or fatal. And that is often the case because, Louise mentioned figures at the, at the beginning, we have roughly three people die a week in Scotland at the moment. Um, but, but when you consider the number of miles that are covered, the amount of journeys that are undertaken by people, three is possibly a figure we can't use to threaten people. And, not, and as you know, in the, in that behavioural change model, unless you introduce some sort of personal risk or personal threat or personal vulnerability, you don't pay, take people on the journey with you. So if you can, if you have to say there are three people dying every week in Scotland Road, people will actually think, well, that's not bad. And whenever you're doing, you know, if you're doing talks to people and you just throw out the question at the beginning, how many people do you think die in Scotland Roads? I think 2,000, Mike. If it was 2,000, we'd be, we'd be broken, you know. Um, and, and when you then say, well, it's actually only 150, they think, well, that's not bad, given what's going on. So people's perception of risk in the, in the driving environment is very, very low. This might be a brilliant opportunity for you both just to talk us through the, the Live Fast, Die Old initiative, which you've launched for, for motorcyclists. Um, what's the thinking? What, what, what's the kind of know-how behind that? And, and how will it achieve what you hope it will achieve? I'll throw that to uh, to both of you, either of you. Well, I'm quite happy to start with that one. So it, it's well recognised, I'm sure you know this yourself, that motorcyclists are a particularly difficult group to reach. A lot of the, the research and insight gathering has been done into to motorcyclists over the years suggests that for many of them, the risk is the reason they like biking. And of course, we also have to, to, to balance this risk homeostasis. So the safer we make things for people, the more likely they are to introduce a wee bit more risk because they have a level of risk which they're comfortable with. But more, for motorcycles in particular, um, they had this notion that, you know, they, they, would, they loved their riding. And if something bad happened, well, that was it, you know, and, and they, you know, these great... Um, occasions where bikers turn out to, to the funeral of another biker and, you know, there's this great razzmatazz about it and he, he died doing what he loved doing and all this kind of thing. So so it became very obvious very quickly that we're a particularly difficult group group to, to talk to. And the, the Live Fast Isle thing uh, came about last year because we thought, well, we're not going to persuade them to, to stop doing what they're doing. They're doing. So the, the kind of approach we were taking was, well, do it, enjoy it, but make sure you survive, you know, the, the all kind of come and go and shiny side up type thing. And and that's where the fast I all grew from. Um and and the development of that has been that all the well, all of the engagement with people on the Fast Isle website is then has then been developed into these breathtaking roads that we've we've come up with. So this notion that there are Lots of people would come to visit Scotland uh, to look at the scenery and travel these breathtaking roads and the, the cats like, don't let them take your breath away for good. Uh, and, and the support we got from Police Scotland and creating them was just amazing. You know, you couldn't, you couldn't have bought it if you'd wanted to, you know. I think it has been successful, I suppose, in terms of the actual campaign in itself. And one of the challenges we always have is the motorcyclists and um, the number that are seriously injured and sadly killed over the kind of biking season. So we're always trying to come up with something that is new and innovative and attracts the motorcycling community because what we don't want is to preach to people and we really want them to be engaged with it. And I think through the, the work that Michael's outlined, that really has happened for this campaign. So for Police Scotland, we got one of our most experienced motorcycle sergeants to be involved in night sets. So they are clearly very highly trained officers on their 
own personal bikes um, when they're off duty, but also on police bikes when they're on duty. So um, also they're involved in, in dealing with the aftermath, I suppose, of collisions and things go wrong with motorcyclists. So we were really delighted to be involved in this from the outset. And you have that kind of technical expertise, how to reach, I suppose, um, the, the motorcycling community and also the, the skills and the observations that are needed to be a, a safe rider. Um, so we were involved from that, involved with the kind of the filming of it, suggestions of how to kind of place yourself on the road, what to look out for, the hazards, the perception of hazards, um, and just to try and give riders that little bit more expertise, I suppose, and make them a safer rider when they're out and about enjoying the breathtaking roads in Scotland. I mean, it was quite a, it was quite a challenge, and it's like really, really um, interesting because you, you're dealing with people who have an expertise level which is unmatched, unparalleled with the, with the general public. But what they have to do then is they have to don a kind of general public helmet and try and be an ordinary rider, even with all those skills. Because what, what would we be advising uh, people to do in a bike? They wouldn't do themselves because of the, the level they're trained to. Uh, and there were some really interesting discussions at the beginning because I think always when we sit down to campaigns, we have to rein the creatives in because the creatives are interested in making beautiful uh, adverts. And what we have to do is to make sure that the, the road safety content isn't lost in that. Uh, and Neil Crozier, that um, Eloise referred to, the sergeant who was involved, he, he virtually choreographed every single one of the videos, working with the director. He went in the site visits, uh, was involved from the initial discussions about what we wanted to do. Um, and, and he used to phone me up and say, how, how strong do you want me to be, Michael? When I go back to them, I, say, I would say to him, Neil, you go back and tell them exactly what it is you want, because ultimately this is a road safety video. It's not a... It's not a, a Visit Scotland video, which a lot of them look like, but there still had to be good road safety content in them. And, and the the two of them eventually began to trust each other. Uh, I was saying to Louise recently, when we first sat down, um, Neil was a bit horrified at what we were planning and doing because it was just so alien to the way he thought, you know, but eventually he became so committed to it. He was actually coming back, making suggestions in advance of even the script writers. And I have my knuckles up for that too in the past, so I presume he did as well. But uh, it, was a, it was a real great collaboration from our point of view. That was Michael MacDonald from Road Safety Scotland. And you also heard Chief Superintendent Louise Blakelock, Police Scotland's Head of Roads Policing. Well, it's now time to pick up on the older drivers conversation we had last week and to invite two academics to help us push that conversation further along. So it's welcome to Sam Chapman from The Flow, and first to Professor Charles Musselwhite from the University of Aberystwyth. And I first asked him to remind us why there needs to be so much attention on ensuring safer road journeys for older drivers. Mobility is really important for older people's health and well-being, um, possibly more so than, than ever before. You know, we've, we've actually got a cohort of older people who are more fit and more healthy than, than ever before, albeit with lots of, of changes that completely natural that happen to people throughout their life, cause changes in cognition, so their memory, their attention, changes in eyesight, changes in hearing. Um, but they affect people differently at different stages of their life and affect different people at different times. So 
Um, but we've got an old, older cohort who are much more fit than ever before. They want to get out and about. They want to stay connected to people and friends that they've met throughout their lifetime. They're more likely than any previous generation to live further away than where they grew up. They're more likely to have moved around for work. Some people moved internationally, so they want to stay connected to all those different communities, all those different places they've 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 stayed connected with throughout their lifetime. Um, and you know, later life is no different to to the rest of the life when they want to do that. So they've worked all over they've got friends and family all over we've got places where um, shops and services are agglomerating at the edge of town or city centers we don't have as many local shops as we once had so and services are the same so people need to move and travel for those so older people are more mobile than than ever before so it's really important for their their life and their health and, and their well-being so um, when they find mobility difficulties that happen to again to us all as we age um, then it becomes difficult to to stay connected to those things that we want to do um, and you know lots of people tell me that older people uh, it's all about going to the hospital it's all about going to the shops and things like that when I talk to older people it's as much about going to the pub or to their um, to, to, to the things they really enjoy doing the choir the football match those kind of things as well but I think more than ever we need a car in order to be able to do those things as simply and easily as possible but of course lots of things that happen to older people mean they can't drive as well in later life albeit uh, you know as we know that the cohort as a whole is pretty safe there's still things that happen to older people that mean they might have to give up driving and then that becomes a, a real issue if they haven't used public transport for a long time or there isn't public transport available or they're not so steady on their feet can't do long distance walking for example then they can't get out and about and do the things they they want to do we know that when people's mobility is reduced in later life then that's linked to uh, detriments in in health and 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 well-being both mental health particularly but also physical health uh, as well um, so yeah real detrimental uh, potential in later life if people can't get out and about now I'm going to introduce um, Sam, Sam Chapman. Um, you're very welcome to join us. And I believe you're particularly interested in what constitutes effective ways of assessing an, a, a, an older driver's fitness to drive. Perhaps you can give us a bit of detail as to you know, who you represent and, and how you're going about with your research. Yep, yeah, I'm uh, from a company called The Flow, which is part of the Autonomo Group. We're um, focused on a research project working for the Road Safety Trust, so investigating the use of new technologies to better identify fitness to drive. Now, fitness to drive is um, obviously something that's been going on for a long time. People are um, reaching a point in their life where family members or clinicians or experts that are appointed for driving assessment will review people to say, are you still safe to drive? Now the issue is not everyone gets referred into this. So people with neurological conditions, only 47% of the UK actually have access to qualified clinicians that are able to do that referral, which means there's a whole series of people that don't get referred at the point that would normally be referred through those clinical routes. And there's also a resistance to uh, put people forward for, test for testing when they know that they might lose their freedom. So it is something that's very controversial. No one wants to um, face this at a particular point, so therefore often people take an attitude of potentially hiding the fact that their driving might not be as good as it used to be, or they might moderate their behaviour slightly, but actually they don't quite know when they should or shouldn't stop driving. So the important thing is actually identifying that point where it becomes more of a risk to others, and to, to leave people driving as long as they possibly can to make sure that people can remain safe. Um, 
The, the old, older driver um, investigations at the moment tend to take a referral into uh, driving mobility centres where there'll be a physical assessment in an unfamiliar vehicle on an unfamiliar location um, in probably the first exam that many of the older drivers would have had for many decades. So it's a, a test that they are not familiar with, not comfortable with, and it's only tested at one moment. Now people drive at different times, they, they also, if they have a bad day, they've got medical conditions, they may not drive for a while. So actually there's certain things whereby people will behave in different ways and that testing approach may and then not be suitable for assessing everybody. So we're looking at new technologies, how to actually take information from vehicles as they move so that we can use that to assess and understand the changing aspects of people's driving behaviour. Now it's not new technology, this technology has been used of younger drivers, so things like telematics, black boxes, are looking at people's risk as they move to understand those degrees of risk and predictors that say, is this person safe, are they not, what's their exposure? And ultimately understanding that for older drivers can actually triage a better way to actually put people through assessment processes, rather than simply, you have reached a certain age, you must be assessed. Some people could carry on driving for many years without the need for actual assessment, as where others may need assessing much younger because of clinical conditions that they may themselves face. So it allows a fairer way of checking this and actually allows a longitudinal tracking rather than just a spot check in an individualised test because it can monitor driving throughout a long period of time to understand those degrees of risk. So we're using that new technology to investigate new ways to understand where safety um, lies with individuals. Sam, thank you. Charles Musselwhite, there must now be the opportunity for city planners, designers to, to come up with like some new transport systems that would support the needs of, of older people. Uh, well, there, there are there are some examples of where it works well. We, we, we do lots of research with older people themselves to identify what it is that helps them stay mobile and and uh you know what doesn't what gets in the way of get them getting out and about and um you know there's there's no rocket science involved i bet we could list on a piece of paper straight away you know the key things that older people need in order to be able to walk in their local area in order to be able to cycle so you've got to have uh, dedicated large space for, for for pavements or sidewalks um dedicated space for for cycling if you can away from traffic um cross uh, crosswalks or pedestrian crossings for people to get across the road that give people enough time um and just making the space really attractive i think we focus very much on making space um for people for walking and cycling that's that's very utilitarian, it's very practical. Um, lots of the space is designed around the car anyway, so you, you create what people have termed sorts of um, 50 kilometer per hour zones um, or, or environments around so that, that you know you have large signage around the place that dwarfs you if you're walking, makes you feel like you shouldn't really be in those places if you're, if you're walking, let alone if you're somebody who's not quite so steady on your feet in later life or a little bit more anxious about falling as might happen in, in later to life so you know i don't think we've 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 designed the environment very well for um walking and cycling and we don't design it very well particularly for older people walking cycling who might just have a few more additional needs um you know the best examples are where there is off-road space to do this and, and wide large pavements in order to to do it in order for people to stay connected and, and be able to walk and, and get out and about and it's the same with public transport we, we're hearing more and more all the time that public transport's being reduced in in number but it's also reduced in quality and quantity so 
um, it, it becomes a, an issue that older people can't rely on it as much as perhaps they, they once did. And where I am in, in Aberystwyth and, and West Wales, of course, in rural areas, and that's even worse for, for uh, people staying connected to the things they want to do um, when they don't want to drive anymore or are unable to, to drive anymore. So, um, you know, it isn't rocket science, but we're still not doing it very well, really. Um, let's just give the final word, if we may, um, to Sam Chapman. Telematics then, um, and bearing in mind um, Project Edward this year, the theme is changing minds, changing behaviour. Give me some idea of what telematics and the good analysis and understanding and interpretation of telematics can do for positive behaviour change as it applies to older drivers. Well, there's a whole series of things that telematics can see um, related to driving. So obviously, younger drivers, it can see the, the, the aggression of sudden movement um, at inappropriate speed. But with older drivers, it's more about the adaptation they've made as they've evolved their driving style through their life and tells them where they're actually incurring risk. Right turns at T-junctions, for example, from low speed to high speed road are extremely problematic, particularly for older drivers with slower um, uh, speed of reaction and they are associated with about two to three times the number of fatal incidents in that age range than any other age group. So you, there are parts of the infrastructure that you can start to understand. You can start to see these patterns of behaviour from how people are driving. You can see sudden movements at uh, junctions and aborted movements as people are attempting to negotiate through particular um, intersections. And these are um, helpful to inform how someone could drive in a safer way. So it's not just about actually saying, oh, you're no longer safe to drive. It's actually also using data from vehicles, how they drive, to inform safer driving in itself. And that can make people actually adapt their behaviour and slowly come to terms with their change in situations. It can give them the information they need when people start to say, well, maybe I don't drive at night, or I don't drive during rush hour, or I don't drive at other times when I see myself as a medical risk or I'm, my symptoms aren't as good today, for example. And it starts to actually feed back that information of where they start to see things that are more risky occurring in correlation to allow them to make decisions about how they control their own future, rather than waiting to a point of actually being literally unsafe and being told to stop. That's actually what telematics can do and the information from vehicles because it can give the individual a value to be able to make decisions themselves to empower their own lives. Dr Sam Chapman from The Flow. You also heard Professor Charles Musselwhite from the University of Aberystwyth. And that's it on Are We There Yet? for this week. We'll be back next week with another episode. Our guests include Heidi Duffy from Nottinghamshire Police and Ian Temperton from Norfolk, who's organising one of our Project Edward road trips. With those two on board, you can be guaranteed some sparkling conversation on motorcycle safety topics. So do join us then. But for now, from me, James Luckhurst, it's cheerio. And don't forget to tell all your friends to subscribe to the Project Edward podcast. Bye-bye.